This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, 7.06 a.m. on Monday, the 13th of March. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. In half an hour, we're going to discuss the outlook for ASEAN economies with a particular focus on Indonesia. But as always, we're going to kickstart the week and this morning with a look at how global markets closed overnight. They all last Friday, you mean? That's right. Well, it's all in the red, unfortunately. The Dow is down 1.1%, S&P 500 down 1.5%, NASDAQ down 1.8%. And just to say, the S&P gains gained this whole year has now been erased. For Asian markets, the Nikkei is down 1.7%, Hang Seng down 3%, and that's why also now year-to-date it's down 2.33%. Shanghai Composite down 1.4%, Singapore's STI down 1.2%, and back home, FBM KLCI down 1.1%. Everything's in the red uh, as we open on Monday. But uh, for insights into what's moving international markets, we have on the line with us Kingsley Jones, Chief Investment Officer at Jevons Global. Kingsley, good morning. Now, when it comes to employment numbers, good news is bad news. And Friday's U.S. jobs report showed that the labor market is still booming with over 300,000 jobs added in February. That's higher than what economists were expecting. What does this mean for the Fed's FOMC when it meets? next week? I do think it means that the Fed will uh, incline to yet another rate rise. Um, Given the situation with Silicon Valley Bank, it had been suggested they might do 50 basis points. I think they'll just be a little bit cautious and go with 25 as a result. So that's the big change. But clearly the message from that employment report is that interest rate rises, there'll be more to come. And it's really just a near-term judgment on the part of the Fed as to how hard they should go until they see where this dust settles regarding SVB and their failure. Do we have a sense of why this number was such a good number? There was a lot of talk that, you know, a warming weather has brought forward some of the summer jobs incessantly. Um, Is this something that's structural or ad hoc? I think there are elements of a a structural um, nature. Um, And in particular, I think one of the big changes uh, that's happening around the world uh, you know, is uh, we're seeing a lot more interest in manufacturing. Uh, we're seeing a lot more interest in uh, infrastructure development. And in places like the United States, you have um, really, frankly, a, a large amount of infrastructure re- rebuilt and a significant uh, uh, pulse from business to invest more in reshoring, you know, building new plants, uh, particularly in areas like autos and chips and so on. So, you know, that's happening in the background uh, and that supports employment. But the other factor I point to is demographics, and uh, namely, you know, baby boomers are, are moving into retirement. Uh, many uh, basically left the workforce uh, in the pandemic, and and so you have this uh, developing labour shortage, uh, which will take time to fill. Uh, and I think that's the main reason for robust employment. The final factor that's worthy of note is that in the early stages of inflation, um, that's often supportive of economic growth, uh, because uh, you you see this sort of higher, uh, shall we say, velocity of money in the economy as people move to buy things ahead of price rises. So that has a pull forward effect on both growth and employment. And I think that's part of the reason why the Fed is really struggling to put a lid on inflation right now. Um, And, uh, you know, it's a positive as long as inflation doesn't get out of hand. And earlier you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank, um, Kingsley, and I think the I think markets are really trying to um, grapple with the fallout of this collapse. What system? 
Do you think we'll see a systemic impact of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse on major U.S. financial names like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs? Well, certainly um, in, in the late part of last week, you know, there were some big down moves, particularly in, in banks like Bank of America. And I think what the market is sorting through right now is uh, the specific reasons why Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Obviously, there was a bank run. That's the reason they collapsed. But but what were the factors in terms of the management of that entity which contributed to a loss of confidence? Now, it appears that the main issue is that Silicon Valley Bank, for whatever reason, had chosen to do minimal, if no, head, hedging of interest rate risk. And yet they had a lot of uh, long-dated uh, treasury bonds and also mortgage securities uh, in their portfolio book. Now, this is important in the United States because mortgages are often fixed rate. Um, and so as interest rates rise, the value of those mortgages goes down. And if you don't hedge that by using interest rate features appropriately, uh, you, you will get not a permanent loss of capital, but you will get impaired assets if you need to sell them to raise money for a bank run, for example. Um, and that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. But, but in all honesty, to do that, to not hedge interest rate risk, is a sign of an incredibly poorly run bank. Um, and so the big question here is, how many incredibly poorly run banks are there in the United States? And we think that probably there's a lot fewer than maybe that market reaction suggested. And in particular, for the systemically important banks, there's eight of them among those you mentioned. Uh, they all have active interest rate hedging programs. And so we think the risk of them having any degree of contagion is quite minimal. Yeah, so you're kind of saying it's a management issue here, isn't it? It's not going to be something that has a domino effect. Yeah, I think so. Never say never. There may be other regional banks. I mean, First Republic, I think it is, uh, is under some pressure. Uh, and some of the money that left Silicon Valley Bank and went to other regionals, uh, you know, if there was a crowding effect from, uh, you know, uh, startups and venture capital firms in, in the United States choosing to put their money in another regional and then all concentrating there rather than put it in a major money center bank uh, like the systemic large uh, eight, uh, then, I, then I think there would be a risk of a follow-on, um, uh, you know, banking crisis if whatever bank people chose to send their money to was not actively hedging interest rate risk. That's the key thing here. So, um, look, uh, I don't think that that many U.S. regional banks are badly managed. You know, there are always some that go broke every year, but on all honesty, there's thousands of such banks in the United States. Um, and the effects on the majors, I think, are going to be very minimal. So, you know, for investors, it probably represents a buying opportunity first in the majors later this week, and perhaps next week when we see the aftermath of current events, uh, maybe even, you know, the KBW, the ETF for regionals. We just have to wait, see. And analysts, I might add, will be going through the notes to the accounts with great diligence right now to figure out what evidence is there of interest rate hedging within any given regional. And any regional that shows up as not having any clear sign that they've hedged uh, with possibly a fair market value shortfall, uh, they will be the target of short sales for sure. Do you think there are opportunities in the tech sector? Because clearly the tech sector now is under a lot of pressure, right, following this uh, fallout. I think we need to stand back from the tech sector right now just to see what that fallout is. I think the very positive news is that the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, so remember that in the United States, the first $250,000 of a deposit US is, is actually insured. You'll get it back. But amounts over that are not. 
So the FDIC announced over the weekend that they'll pay an interim dividend on those deposits for the uninsured deposits. And the big, really big signal in that interim dividend, which will likely come today, is uh, just uh, just how many cents on the dollar is it? You know, some of the um, some of the uh, rumours are that uh, hedge funds are offering between sixty and eighty cents on the dollar, which seems about right to us. Probably it'll settle on seventy. Uh, the FDIC won't pay out the full value on a fair market value basis. Uh, they'll probably pay out something like half. And if we see them pay out half, uh, then that probably in the short term, to answer your question, uh, will ensure that we won't see major job losses amongst startups, at least in the near term. But there will be pressure to cover that shortfall down the track, probably with more capital raisings. And, uh, you know, the truth of it is that um, Silicon Valley Venture Capital raised a ton of money over the past couple of years. Uh, but their likelihood of raising further amounts of that magnitude is right, pretty slim right now. So this will be a period of consolidation, we think, for tech. Hmm. How does um, the Asian equity market landscape uh, look like in contrast to the turmoil in the U.S.? I mean, do you see investors placing more of their money in this region as they wait for uh, whatever volatility in the U.S. markets to um, calm down? Well, I'm not sure about investors in general, but if I might speak just for our own attitude, um, we definitely think there's opportunities in Asia. And I think the moral of this story is that you know, here you have um, an August institution in Silicon Valley that's been operating for 40 years, so well regarded that pretty much everybody put their money in the same bank. Um, and yet it would appear that that bank was actually pretty poorly managed in an operational sense, particularly around interest rate risk management. So there's an important lesson there not to be deluded uh, by where a particular company or institution comes from. And I think in Asia, we've seen the opposite. We've seen a lot of, you know, shall we say, attitudes of, of suggesting that certain Asian companies are not well run, um, certain countries are not investable, uh, and so on. And I think we'll see in a reappraisal of that attitude, because as far as we're concerned, there's plenty of opportunities in Asia. I'll just mention a few. Uh, we think in China, particularly on the Hong Kong exchange, some of the telcos and energy companies are looking pretty cheap with good yields right now. We think that foreign investors will start buying those, particularly if they're not from the United States. Uh, and then over in Japan, which is less controversial, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about the BOJ and the change of leadership. But we think that certain Japanese companies are very, very well positioned for the energy transition and for this change in manufacturing activity around the world. So in particular, the group of Japanese trading houses we like, there's about seven or eight of them. Uh, but the ones we like right now is Atoshu and Marini and uh, companies like Sojits and Mitsubishi. And they're all doing very well in spite of some parts of the Japanese economy being weak. And then if you look over in Korea, you know, Korea is actually doing a pretty good job uh, of, uh, you know, building companies that can do electric vehicles in Hyundai and Kia. Uh, and, and I think that investors will be drawn to those. And that's before you get into the larger story of what's happening in the ASEAN countries, which we don't follow very much. But, uh, you know, folks would be aware that, for example, Vietnam is attracting a lot of new economic activity as people seek other destinations from China to do their manufacturing. So we think it'll actually be quite a positive decade for Asia. And, and this period of market adjustment might represent an ideal time to actually put money to work.
Kingsley, thanks very much for speaking with us. That was Kingsley Jones, Chief Investment Officer at Jevons Global in Sydney, giving us his take on some of the trends that uh, we're seeing moving markets, possibly in the days and weeks ahead as well. I mean, it's a fair point that I think Asia will see prosperity in the next decade. I was seeing some research over the weekend that 60% of growth in the world will come from Asia. So there are opportunities there. The question is where and when. Indeed, something that we'll be keeping an eye on. Can we very quickly cover news coming out um, of Aramco? Saudi Arabia's state-controlled oil giant Aramco reported its largest annual profit of 161 billion US dollars for 2022. This is a 47% year-on-year increase from the previous year, bolstered by soaring oil and gas prices, along with higher sales volume and improved margins for refined products. Just to give you some context, this Profit is double Malaysia's budget 2023, okay? <laughs> Just to give you a sense of how big this profit number is. Free cash flows reached record $149 billion in 2022 compared to $107 billion. Results are nearly triple of the profits of the largest next all major Exxon Mobil poster for 2022. So stonking big numbers here. It's 7.18 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. We'll continue covering the top stories in the newspapers and portals. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.